Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tay. Grab a cup of coffee. And and let's let's get get our fix. Hey, addicts. So today we are talking about part two of the FBI's most wanted list and the only 10 women in history to have made the list. I am so excited. Me too. This is going to be a really, really interesting podcast. Um, But of course, before we get started, we are actually both drinking an iced vanilla chai latte. So good. Like Christmas in a cup. For all of my chai haters out there, I don't want to hear it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know so who good. you are. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we love you and the support. <laughs> 100%. But you should like your chai tea. <laughs> yes. Um, and if you don't, go to the website because I will have a few fun recipes for you to give chai tea another try. Alrighty. So we wanted to give a huge shout out to our fellow crime addicts and everyone who have been supporting and following and sharing our journey so far. We appreciate you guys so much more than we can even say yes and we actually have a donate button up and running on our website because we are completely self-funded right now so any amount would be greatly appreciated um we also have a reviews tab up on our website as well where you can go ahead and leave your reviews um so if you haven't already don't forget to like follow share across all social media platforms you can find us at crime addicts pod on twitter facebook ig youtube and tiktok or at crimeaddictspodcast.com all right i am just beyond excited for this so kylie i am gonna take over the reins on this first one if you don't mind let's go <laughs> all righty so the very first woman to be put onto the fbi's most wanted list is ruth eisman Shear. Scheer was born in Honduras in 1942 and was the daughter of Austrian-Jewish refugees living there after escaping Nazi persecution. She was a graduate of National University of Mexico and was a graduate student at the University of Miami's Institute of Marine Science when she met Gary Stephen Christ. On December 28, 1968, Eisman Scheer was the 293rd fugitive and the first woman to be added to the most wanted list. She was placed on this list for participating in the kidnapping for ransom of land heirs Barbara Jane Mackle in Decatur, Georgia, in a plan concocted by her boyfriend, Gary Stephen Christ. The plan went like this. On December 17, 1968, Mackle, then a 20-year-old Emory University student, was staying at the Roadway Inn in Decatur, Georgia, with her mother. Mackle was sick with the Hong Kong flu, which had hit the student body population of Emory super hard. So her mother had driven to the Atlanta area to take care of her daughter and then drive her back to the family home in Coral Gables, Florida. A stranger, Gary Stephan Christ, knocked on the door, claiming to be the police, and he was wearing a policeman's cap. He had told Mackle that Stuart Hunt Woodward had been in a traffic accident. Woodward was Mackle's friend at the time, although they later married. Okay, so I just want to get this right. So you have Mackle, mm-hmm. who is the land heiress. Yes. And her friend Woodward, right? Yes. And then her mom is staying with her at the at the hotel. hotel because she's sick from being on campus. Yes. Okay. And then we have our lovely two that are about to step in. Is that yes. where we're at? Okay. Who came in at the door with the police cap stating that Mackle's friend, Woodward, 
Okay. wasn't an accident. Okay. I just wanted to make sure because I was, there's a lot there's of people lot. involved. So, <laughs> there's okay. a lot. Okay. So Woodard supposedly was in a car accident. Continue. Yes. So once inside Christ and his accomplice, can we guess? I'm going to go with Eisman Shear. <laughs> <laughs> so she was actually disguised as a man. Okay. They chloroformed, bound, and gagged Mackle's mother and forced Barbara Jane Mackle at gunpoint into the back of their waiting car, informing her that she was being kidnapped. They drove her to a remote pine stand off South Berkeley Lake Road in Gwinnett County. Okay, can we just say real quickly, we are going to butcher many names. Oh my goodness, I already got <laughs> feedback from the first one that we were making all kinds of errors and misspelling or misspeaking things. And um, I can say right now, sorry for now and forever, because yes, that's going to continue to happen. It's going to continue and it's not on purpose. We're doing our best. Okay, so I'm going to guess... Just keep track with the story. Okay. I'm going to guess Gwinnett? Gwinnett County near okay. Duluth, Georgia. And buried Mackle. So, okay. Back up. They drove her to a remote pine stand off South Berkeley Lake Road in Gwinnett County near Duluth, Georgia. And that's where they buried Mackle in a shallow trench inside of a fiberglass reinforced box. The box was outfitted with an air pump, a battery powered lamp, water laced with sedatives and food. There was also two plastic pipes that was there to provide Mackle with the outside air. Okay, I feel like I'm getting claustrophobia just listening to this story. Continue. Chris and Eisman Shear demanded a $500,000 ransom from Mackle's millionaire father, Robert Mackle, a wealthy Florida land developer. $500,000 in 1968 is equivalent to $4.5 million today in 2022. That's um, that's a lot of money then. That's a lot of money now. We've been saying that quite a bit, yeah. but that's a lot of money. Okay. So the first attempt at ransom drop was disrupted when two police drove by. Real police. <laughs> <laughs> they completely just screwed up that initial mission. The kidnappers fled on foot and the FBI found their car abandoned. Inside the car, the FBI found photographs as a of a man with a policeman's hat and the car registration in the name of George Deacon. The second ransom drop was successful actually, but there was no word from the kidnappers. So the FBI was actually able to trace George Deacon to the University of Miami where they realized he built ventilated boxes for a living. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> right? Deacon's boss provided the name of Ruth Eisman Shear, who also worked at the university and was someone Deacon spent time with. The FBI was contacted by a local man in Georgia claiming he had just bought a small trailer and found some odd paperwork inside. The FBI discovered letters addressed to George Deacon and Gary Christ, an escapee from California State Prison since 1966. And when the FBI compared prints found in the car to the ones found in Christ's file, they realized that Deacon wasn't actually the one who was doing all this, and it was actually Christ. Okay, on December 20th, Christ called and gave a switchboard operator of the FBI vague directions to Mackle's burial place. The FBI set up their base in Lawrenceville, and more than 100 agents spread out through the area in an attempt to find her, digging the ground with their hands and anything they could find to use. Mackle was found and rescued, suffering from dehydration but otherwise unharmed. She had spent 80 hours buried underground. So, Christ was arrested two days later, hiding in a Florida swamp. 
<laughs> but Sheer eluded police for 79 days before being apprehended to Norman, Oklahoma on March 5th of 1969. Eisman Sheer claims she left Miami because she and Chris became separated after the money drop and she was unable to get back to the car and thought Chris had abandoned her. Sheer was extradited from Oklahoma to Georgia to face trial where she pleaded guilty and was sentenced to seven years in prison. Sheer served four years of her sentence and was paroled in 1973 on the condition of deportation to her native Honduras. Christ was convicted and sentenced to life in prison in 1969, but was released on parole after just 10 years. Christ received a pardon to allow him to attend medical school. Kind of crazy. He practiced medicine in Indiana before his license was revoked in 2003 for lying about a disciplinary action received during his residency. I wonder if it had anything to do with burying women. Okay. <laughs> So then in March 2006, Chris was arrested on a sailboat off of the coast of Alabama with 14 kilograms, which is 31 pounds of cocaine, reportedly worth about a million dollars and four illegal aliens. He was sentenced to five years and five months in prison and released in November of 2010. On August 27, 2012, in Mobile, Alabama, U.S. District Judge revoked Chris's supervised release for violation of his probation. He had left the country without permission, sailing to Cuba and South America on his sailboat. The judge sentenced Chris to 40 months imprisonment. Well, it doesn't sound like his uh, criminal behavior changed at all. I mean, Not at first all. he buried somebody for kidnapped for ransom. Then he goes to prison, gets out, immediately is committing more crimes, and they're drug-related. Then they catch him on a boat sailing to Cuba and South America. I wonder what he was doing there. I mean, like, this guy just doesn't <laughs> With stop. With how many pounds of cocaine? Yeah, he yeah. just doesn't stop. No surprises. Oh, my gosh. Okay. But I am a little surprised, like, for Ruth being placed onto the most wanted list, mm -hmm. she kind of just got a slap on the wrist. I agree. And um, and then I mean, to being just sent back to her home, I mean, yeah, just to live, do probably more criminal activity there. Yeah. And I mean, I, I don't know what you found in your research, but in mine, I couldn't find anything about what she's doing in Honduras to date. Like nothing. she, there was nothing that I could find that said that she was committing crimes out there, that she had a family, that yeah. she was even alive. I mean, yeah. from what I can see is she's alive living in Honduras and living a very crime-free normal life that's literally all i could find so i wonder if that influence of having chris as her boyfriend or whatever at the Probably. time was what was caused her criminal influence. behavior or not but i mean being on the run for 79 days that's a long time it does that's got to take a toll on you but i mean we're gonna see more and we've seen more already with the with the top 10 that were on there for a lot longer but man, yeah i can't even imagine one day so all right let's move on to the second female placed on the list her name is marie dean Arrington, who was born on August 8th, 1933 in Leesburg, Florida. We don't know very much about her early years because she refuses to talk about those days. We do know that she had a sister and dropped out of school in the sixth grade. She also committed many, many crimes, including forgery at the age of 22, assault at the age of 23, larceny and robbery at the age of 24, passing bad checks at the age of 28, larceny and vehicle theft at the age of 31. I mean, the list continues Jeez. on, and that's only to say what she was caught for. I mean, how many things in between? Right. She had five children and two of them before she was even 20 years old. 
She prided herself on being a mother and doing whatever it took to care for her children, even from prison. On May 29, 1969, Arrington was the 301st fugitive and second woman placed on the FBI Most Wanted list for escaping prison. To how she ended up in prison, we have to go back a little bit. Okay. Arrington's first conviction occurred in 1964 for the killing of her husband, Lester, a.k.a. Jack Arrington. Jack, who was 34, was a former policeman and a bouncer at a nightclub in Miami. Jack was killed on July 4, 1964 on Bethune Beach. Arrington turned herself in the following day, confessing to shooting her husband. During the trial, Arrington claimed that she had shot her husband as an accident. But the weird thing is her lawyer claimed self-defense. It was His story was that Jack had become violent with her while the two were arguing in the car. But don't discount that right away. So this resulted in her shooting him based off his story. Um, however, there was a witness. So Nathaniel Powers, he came forward and he said that he actually ended up taking a stray bullet to the leg. What? And he told police that he broke the couple up after he saw Jack choking her in the front seat of the car. As the police were unable to locate the weapon, Arrington was found guilty of manslaughter instead of more severe charges and sentenced to 20 years in prison. So Arrington would later admit in, 2000, in a 2012 interview that she had buried the gun with her husband. There's no way to really confirm that and they're not exhuming the body, but um, it's interesting that she would commit that it just, or state that she committed the crime by accident when they have her lawyer and a witness saying, no, like he was being violent and that was in self-defense. And then even between both of those, she still got convicted of manslaughter. Right. So in 1967, her oldest son, Lloyd Dean, and his friend, Eddie Lee Daly, robbed a gas station in Leesburg, Florida. No one was hurt and only 40 to $60 was stolen. Her son was represented by public defender Bob Pierce, who advised him to plead guilty. Dean was sentenced to life in prison in 1968 at the age of 18, while Daly only received probation. Pierce had also represented Arrington's oldest daughter, Maria Francina, on unrelated fraud charges, which resulted in her daughter receiving two years in prison as well. Oh my gosh. So being the mama bear that Arrington is, this enraged her. So she felt that the public defender, Pierce, did not fairly represent her son. On April 22nd, 1968, while she was out on an appeal bond for her manslaughter conviction, Arrington went to Pierce's office in Leesburg with the intention of killing him. Once there, she discovered that Pierce was not at the office, so she just decided to abduct his secretary instead. This was Vivian June Ritter, who is 37 years old. And in doing this, this raised tensions within the town. Searches were conducted for Ritter and a psychic was consulted to help find the secretary as well. Wow. They were desperate. Yeah. Her car was discovered two days after her disappearance and it was completely filled with blood, just blood stained everywhere. The body of Ritter, who had three children, was found three days later in the woods near State Road 44, several miles away from Leesburg, Florida. She had been shot three times in the back of the head and run over with her own car repeatedly. So she I just really took that out on that secretary. She did. And here's the thing that I I understand being a defensive mama bear and wanting to protect your children. That's taking But the first of all, to, to the hands. level of death is too much. But also that attorney had three children or that secretary, the attorney's secretary, mm-hmm. had three, three children, children as well. Mm-hmm. So for somebody who's so protective of 
her children. I mean, she surely didn't give a shit about anybody else's. No, and I'm sorry, but for the most part, like, you can't just take the law into your own hands. Right. That's where a lot of people start getting into trouble. Right. You you just, I mean, especially from, like, her initial reason while she was in jail was self-defense, supposedly. Right. right? And then now coming into this, like, completely 360. Right. So... Going on, many people had placed Arrington at Bob Pierce's office that morning, and her alibi changed over the course of the investigation. First, she was fishing with her cousin, but when her cousin recanted, Arrington admitted she was at the attorney's office, but that her and Ritter were both abducted by two men (laughs) and a woman and taken to an orange grove, and they threatened to kill her if she said anything. She took investigators out to this orange grove where they were able to locate one of Arrington's stockings and one of her shoes. After searching her home, investigators found a ransom note tucked under her bathtub addressed to Bob Pierce demanding the release of three boys in jail and that the names would be given at a later date. They also found Ritter's watch with the letter and a ransom note that said if Pierce did not help to get the three boys released, he would receive the arm that wore the watch and so on until he had every part of her body piece by piece. Oh my gosh. There was also a second threatening note found in the pocket of one of her robes that was addressed to the wife of Judge Troy Hall. And he, this is the judge who sentenced both of her children. The note said that there was a pistol to his wife's head and unless she accompanied the person who wrote the letter, she'd be shot. As if she was planning to kidnap his wife, the judge's wife, and force her to go with her quietly. Wow. So you could imagine this, like, in public or something. She would go up, hand the note, and if she, if he didn't go with her, you know, then she would cause a scene, basically, was what yeah. this note... So you can tell kind of what her plan was, but it was never carried out. Thank goodness, yeah. So her trial began on December 5th, 1968. During the trial for killing Ritter, multiple witnesses testified against Arrington linking her to the crime. A taxi driver reported dropping Arrington off half a block away from Pierce's office on the morning of April 22nd. Arrington's landlady stated that she had lent her a 22 caliber, which was never returned to her and was later found to be the gun that used to kill Ritter. There was no physical evidence, all circumstantial. Also, at the home of Judge Troy Hall, police found a cut screen door, feces on the floor, and her fingerprint on his car. Hold up. This chick pooped on the floor? Is that what that... They are think, you serious? I mean, they... At the time, this is Was she so nervous that she's like, hold on, let me take a poop? <laughs> back in the... I think it's a sign of disrespect. But back in the 60s, they didn't have the... Like, the technology that we have today to test that to confirm yeah, it's it was like her. Yeah, like you're just leaving literal footprints for anyone to be able to track you. In today's day and age, yeah, they couldn't... So this is all... That's why I say it's circumstantial because they weren't able to definitively tie that to her isn't that crazy (laughs) so on december 6th 1968 errington was sentenced to death by electric chair for first degree murder she was taken to the lowell correction institute for women in marion county florida which was also where her daughter was serving her sentence she was placed in a minimum security hospital room despite the prosecutor's best efforts i mean they were fighting and fighting to get her into maximum security and they put her in minimum on March 1st, 1969, she lit matches and singed the screen until it was weak enough that she could tear a hole in it and fled in her pajamas in a housecoat. What? So this is how we get to that she had escaped. This was ultimately what landed her on the FBI Most Wanted list. So she fled to New Orleans and worked as a waitress. 
Investigators tapped the phones of her family and friends. Um, her daughter, while she was in custody, had picked up some other charges and violations, so her sentence continued to get extended out. But she did finally get out, so she was, they were tapping her daughter's phone and that kind of stuff, which is what ended up leading them down to New Orleans. Investigators had suspicions that the woman behind the counter at the diner that they were going to was um, actually Arrington, but was going by the name of Lola Nero. And they were able to confirm this by lifting the fingerprints off of a milkshake cup that she had delivered to the FBI's inve FBI investigators. So as you can imagine, they went up knowing it was her, but had to confirm it, mm -hmm. sit at the counter, ordered a milkshake. When she delivered it to them, they snuck the cup away without touching it and were able to compare the fingerprints from the cup to what they had on file for Arrington. And that's how they were able to confirm that this was not Lola. <laughs> wow. So she was captured on December 23rd, 1971, two and a half years after making the FBI Most Wanted list. Arrington later described the feeling of being wanted as sounding like, quote, the old Wild Wild West and the Jesse James gang, end quote, and noted that reading newspapers about her being wanted dead or alive and the reward was entertaining. <sighs> after she was caught, she was sentenced in 1972 to 10 additional years for escape, but her death sentence was commuted to life in prison when the U.S. Supreme Court struck down capital punishment as unconstitutional on August 28, 1972. While in custody, she incurred many violations and even attempted to escape again, but was not successful. Arrington died from heart problems on May 10, 2014, in Lowell Correctional Institution in Marion County, Florida, which was the same institution she had escaped from. She was 80 years old, her son was still in prison, and her daughter has been unable to be located. Wow. What a family. Talk about a crazy. mama bear. Yeah, setting a great example for her kids. Yes. She, I mean, that was what she took the most pride in, you could tell, was her kids and being a mother, but that's difficult to do from a prison cell, so she tried to make it happen, but... Made it worse. Yeah. <laughs> so the third woman that we are going to be talking about is Angela Yvonne Davis. Davis was born January 26, 1944, and is an American political activist, philosopher, academic, scholar, and author. She is a professor at the University of California, Santa Cruz. A Marxist, Davis was a longtime member of the Communist Party USA and is a founding member of the Committees of Correspondence for Democracy and Socialism. She is the author of over 10 books on class, feminism, race, and the U.S. prison system. So she was born to an African-American family in Birmingham, Alabama. Davis grew up surrounded by communist organizers and thinkers who significantly influenced her intellectual development. Davis was involved in her church youth group as a child and attended Sunday school regularly. She attributes much of her political involvement to her involvement with the Girl Scouts of the United States of America. She also participated in the Girl Scouts 1959 National Roundup in Colorado. As a Girl Scout, she marched and picketed to protest racial segregation in Birmingham. Davis studied French at Brandeis University and philosophy at the University of Frankfurt in West Germany, studying under the philosopher Herbert Marcuse, a prominent figure in the Frankfurt School, Davis became increasingly engaged in far-left politics. 
Returning to the United States, she studied the University of California, San Diego, before moving to East Germany, where she completed a doctorate at the Humboldt University of Berlin. After returning to the United States, she joined the Communist Party and became involved in numerous cases, including the second wave feminist movement and the campaign against the Vietnam War. In 1969, she was hired as an acting assistant professor of philosophy at the University of California, Los Angeles. UCLA's governing board of regents soon fired her due to her Communist Party membership. After a court ruled this illegal, the university fired her again, this time for her use of inflammatory language. Here is what led her to being placed on the FBI's most wanted list. Davis was a supporter of the Soledad brothers, they were three inmates who were convicted of killing a prison guard at Soledad Prison. So on August 7th, 1970, heavily armed 17-year-old African-American high school student Jonathan Jackson, whose brother was George Jackson, one of the three Soledad brothers, gained control of a courtroom in Marin County, California. He armed the black defendants and took Judge Harold Haley, the prosecutor, and three female jurors as hostage. As Jackson transported the hostages and two black defendants away from the courtroom, one of the defendants, James McLean, shot at the police. The police returned fire. The judge and the three black men were killed in the melee. One of the jurors and the prosecutor were injured. Although the judge was shot in the head with a blast from a freaking shotgun, he also suffered a chest wound from a bullet that may have had been fired from outside of the van. Evidence during the trial showed that either could have been fatal. Davis had purchased several of the firearms Jackson used in the attack, including the shotgun used to shoot Haley, which she bought at a San Francisco pawn shop two days before the incident. She was also found to have been corresponding with one of the inmates involved. As California considers all persons concerned in the commissions of a crime, whether they directly commit the act constituting the offense or aid and abet in its commission, are principles in any crime so committed. Davis was charged with aggravated kidnapping and first-degree murder in the death of Judge Harold Haley. And Marin County Superior Court Judge Peter Allen Smith issued a warrant for her arrest. Hours after the judge issued the warrant on August 14, 1970, a massive attempt to find and arrest Davis began. On August 18th, four days after the warrant was issued, the FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, listed Davis on the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitive list. She was the third woman and the 309th person to be listed. Soon after, Davis became a fugitive and fled California. According to her autobiography, during this time, she hid in friends' homes and moved at night. On October 13, 1970, FBI agents found her at a Howard Johnson Motor Lodge in New York City. President Richard M. Nixon congratulated the FBI on its, quote, capture of the dangerous terrorist Angela Davis, end quote. While being held in the Women's Detention Center, Davis was initially placed in solitary confinement. With the help of her legal team, she obtained a federal court order to get out of the segregated area. On January 5th, 1971, Davis appeared at Marin County Superior Court and declared her innocence before the court and nation, stating, and I quote, I now declare publicly before the court, before the people of this country, that I am innocent of all charges which have been leveled against me by the state of California. 
end quote. John Abt, general counsel of the Communist Party USA, was one of the first attorneys to represent Davis for her alleged involvement in the shootings. Across the nation, thousands of people began organizing a movement to gain her release. In 1972, after a 16-month incarceration, the state allowed her release on bail from county jail. On February 23, 1972, Roger McAfee, a dairy farmer from Fresno, California, paid her $100,000 bail with the help of Steve Sparacino, a wealthy business owner. The United Presbyterian Church paid some of her legal defense expenses. A defense motion for a change of venue was granted, and the trial was moved to Santa Clara County. On June 4, 1972, after 13 hours of deliberation, the all-white jury returned a verdict of not guilty. Davis has received various awards, including the Soviet Union Lenin Peace Prize. Accused of supporting political violence, she was sustained criticism from the highest levels of the U.S. government. She has also been criticized for supporting the Soviet Union and its satellites. Davis has been inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. In 2020, she was listed as the 1971 Woman of the Year in Times Magazine's 100 Woman of the Year edition which selected iconic women over the 100 years since women suffrage in the United States of America from 1920. In 2020, she was included on Time's list of the 100 most influential people in the world. I mean, she does have an influential voice, that's to say the least. And I mean, she has her beliefs and dives deep. I mean, she doesn't let go. Yeah, yeah. We're going to see quite a few um, political politically related cases moving forward um so just a heads up on that so the next one is bernadine dorn was born bernadine ornstein in milwaukee wisconsin on january 12 1942 her father changed the family surname to dorn his middle initial plus the first letters of the last name (laughs) when this was all when bernadine was in high school so she went from bernadine ornstein to bernadine dorn in high school Her father was Jewish, although the name change was intended to obscure that, and her mother was of Swedish background and a Christian scientist. Dorn graduated from Whitefish Bay High School, where she was a cheerleader, treasurer of the Modern Dance Club, a member of the National Honor Society, and editor of the school newspaper. Wow. It's funny. I was a part of the National Honor Society. So was I. <laughs> so was I. Oh, and maybe we're going to grow up to be on the FBI's most wanted no! list. <laughs> oh, man. Let's hope not. <laughs> she attended Miami University in Oxford, Ohio for one year before transferring to the University of Chicago, where she graduated with honors with a Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science in 1963. Dorn received her Juris Doctor from the University of Chicago Law School in 1967. While attending law school, Dorn began working in support of civil rights movement leader Martin Luther King Jr. and became the first law student organizer for the National Lawyers Guild. Wow, that's pretty cool. In August 22, 1969, Dorn was arrested in Chicago and charged with possession of drugs. The defense argued that Chicago police had conducted an illegal search of the car in which she was a passenger, which led Judge Kenneth R. Wendt of the Narcotics Court of Chicago to dismiss the charges. On September 20th, 1969, at an anti-Vietnam War rally at the Davis Cup tennis tournament in Cleveland, police arrested Dorn and 20 other persons on charges of disorderly conduct. 
On September 26, 1969, Dorn was arrested again in Chicago during a rally in support of the Chicago 7, who was actually originally Chicago 8, but one of the co-defendants' case was declared a mistrial. So some of you may have heard of this. Basically, these seven defendants were charged by the United States federal government with conspiracy, crossing state lines with intent to incite a riot, and other charges related to anti-Vietnam War and countercultural protests in Chicago, Illinois during the 1968 Democratic National Convention. Just a side note, all seven defendants were charged with and acquitted of conspiracy. Five were charged with and convicted of crossing state lines with intent to incite a riot. Two were charged with teaching demonstrators how to construct incendiary devices and acquitted of those charges. All of the convictions were later reversed on appeal. Dorn was next arrested on October 9th, 1969, but the Chicago police during a rally for the women's faction of the Weatherman group and was later released on a $1,000 bond. On October 31st, 1969, a grand jury indicted 22 people, including Dorn, for their involvement with the trial of the Chicago 7. And she was again indicted on April 2nd, 1970, when a Federal grand jury indicted 12 members of the Weatherman Group on conspiracy charges in violation of anti-riot acts during the, quote, days of rage. However, all of these convictions were reversed in November of 1972 by the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit on the basis that the judge was biased in his refusal to permit defense attorneys to screen prospective jurors for cultural and racial bias. Due to the increasing volatility of the weather underground led by Dorn, on October 14, 1970, Dorn was added to the FBI's Most Wanted Fugitives list as the 314th fugitive and fourth female to make the list. She was removed on December 7, 1973, after District Court Judge dismissed the case against the weathermen. The dismissal was followed shortly by another when on January 3, 1974, a judge dismissed a four-year-old case against 12 members of the Weatherman faction and the students of the Democratic Society, including Dorn. She had been charged with leading the riotous, quote, days of rage. While on the run from police, before this was all dismissed and she was taken off, so while she was on the run, she used many aliases, including Bernadine Ray Orenstein, H.T. Smith, and Marion Delgado. She married during this time. And who she married was another weatherman leader. His name was Bill Ayers, with whom she had two children with, and they built a life together. During the last years of their underground life, Dorn and Ayers resided in Chicago, where they used their aliases Christine Louise Douglas and Anthony J. Lee. A decisive factor in Dorn's decision to come out of hiding were her concerns about her children. The couple turned themselves into authorities in 1980. While some charges related to their activities with the weathermen were dropped due to prosecution misconduct, Dorn pled guilty to misdemeanor charges of aggravated battery and bail jumping for which she was put on probation. After refusing to testify against ex-weathermen Susan Rosenberg in an uh, armed robbery case, Dorn was held in contempt of grand jury and served seven months in prison. So because she wouldn't testify against an ex-weatherman, she got put in prison for seven years and charged with contempt. Shortly after turning themselves in, Dorn and Ayers actually became legal guardians of Chessa Bowden. Um, this was the son of former Weather Underground uh, uh, couple. It was Kathy Bowden and David Gilbert. These two were convicted of murder in their roles in the 1981 armed car robbery. So because they went to prison, Dorn and Ayers actually ended up adopting their son. Okay, so from 1984... To 1988, Dorn was employed by a Chicago 
law firm owned by a friend of her father's. She passed her bar exams in both New York and Illinois. However, she did not submit her application to the New York Supreme Court's Committee on Character and Fitness. And she was turned down by the Illinois Ethics Committee because of her criminal record. In 1991, Dorn was hired by Northwestern University School of Law as an adjunct or temporary professor, which did not require faculty approval. Mm. When law school officials were asked whether or not the dean uh, or the board of trustees approved the hiring, the school responded, quote, while many would take issue with views Ms. Dorn exposed during the 1960s, her career at the law school is an example of a person's ability to make a difference in the legal system, end quote. Her title at Northwestern University School of Law was Clinical Associate Professor of Law. She was one of the founders of the Children and Family Justice Center in the Blum Legal Clinic at Northwestern Law. She retired from Northwestern Law in 2013, and she just celebrated her 80th birthday as we are recording this in 2022. Wow. That is, that's it's kind of weird, I mean, like, in a good way, but to think that some of these people that we're talking about and, like, their life, they're still alive today. Yeah. With grandchildren and families. Yeah. So the next two we are going to be doing a little bit differently, and we're going to combine them together for reasons which will soon be obvious. But first, let's introduce the fifth woman to be placed on the list which is Susan Edith Sachs. Born January 18th, 1949 in Hartford, Connecticut. No other information about her childhood really, which is a little strange since, since she's still alive and has publications regarding political matters, but not her own autobiography. Yeah, I couldn't find that either. It's really strange. I don't, we couldn't really find too much on her childhood. I mean, she's still out there and yeah doing stuff but yeah there's not a whole lot on her childhood that's crazy so now we're going to combine her with our sixth woman and let's introduce Catherine and power so she was born january 25th 1949 in denver colorado as the third of seven children while in high school she won a betty crocker cooking award wrote a regular column for the denver post graduated as valedictorian and received a full scholarship to a liberal arts school in Waltham, Massachusetts. She became known for wandering campus brawless and barefoot in an orange colored smock. So weird. <laughs> what a thing to be known for, right? <laughs> Both Sachs and Power were students at that university and active participants in the national committee that coordinated student-led protest. They were two of several young radicals who were placed on the FBI's most wanted list in the early 1970s. They both coordinated and took part with three ex-cons in a burglary of the National Guard Armory in Newburyport, Massachusetts on September 20th, 1970 to protest the Vietnam War. They stole a pickup truck blasting caps and 400 rounds of 30 caliber ammunition they also set fire to the facility causing about hundred and twenty five thousand dollars in damage three days later on september 23rd 1970 the group robbed a bank in brighton massachusetts carrying handguns a shotgun and a submachine gun wow that's a lot that is a lot the first policeman on the scene, Officer Walter Schroeder of the Boston Police Department, was shot in the back by one of her ex-con accomplices 
when he attempted to stop the robbery. Power was behind the wheel of one of the two getaway vehicles. Officer Schroeder subsequently died from his wounds. The group escaped with $26,000 in cash that they planned to use to finance an overthrow of the federal government. The intention was to steal enough money to provide arms for the Black Panthers. The other three accomplices were captured shortly after the bank robbery. One died in custody while making a bomb as part of an escape attempt. The second turned state's evidence and testified against the third. The second man received a jail term of 25 years for the robbery, while the third received the death penalty for shooting Officer Schroeder. Sachs was a 316th fugitive and the fifth woman to be placed on the list, and Power was a 317th fugitive and the sixth woman to be added to the FBI's most wanted list. This was done on October 10th of 1970. At first, Power and Sachs traveled together, escaping arrest by hiding out in women's communities. For part of this time, the two went to Connecticut and Power assumed the name May Kelly. Sachs remained on the run until 1975 when she was arrested in Philadelphia after a police officer recognized her from a photo distributed by the FBI the same day. She served seven years in prison for her 12 to 14 year sentence for manslaughter and armed robbery. She ran a successful computer company from jail and was paroled in 1982. Wow, a successful computer company from jail. Yep, she paroled after seven years and just kept it going. Wow. Prior to her surrender in 1993, Power had been seen in Kentucky in 1974. So she was the last sighting of Power was in 1974, and she didn't surrender until 1993. Wow. Kind of makes you think, like, what made you do that? This, well, let's get into it. This story is crazy. Listen to this. Okay. So what did she do for 23 years? Power lived underground as Alice Louise Metzinger. She was taking the name from the birth certificate of an infant that had died the year before Power's birth. She moved to Oregon and gave birth to a son, Jamie, by an unknown father. She was also a cooking and nutrition teacher at Lynn Benton Community College in Albany, Oregon. She and a friend opened M's Tea and Coffee House, and she became part owner of Napoli Restaurant and Bakery in Eugene, Oregon. Wow. By 1984... There were no longer leads of power, and the FBI dropped her from the FBI Most Wanted list on June 6, 1984. However, living a lie became too much. After 16 months of therapy and negotiations between authorities and her attorneys, Power turned herself in and pled guilty to charges of manslaughter and armed robbery in 1993. At the time, her son Jamie was aged 14 and a freshman in high school, while Power was aged 44. Her husband, Ron Duncan, then adopted Jamie. While she was in custody. Wow. So they had taken her off the list in 1984, but she still decided to turn herself in in 1993. It makes you wonder, had she gone, had she never turned herself in, would they have ever found her? Probably not. She was doing a really good job for 20-something years. Right. So after she turned herself in, obviously she had to go face court. So in court, Power made the following statement about about Officer Schroeder. Quote, his death was shocking to me, and I have had to examine my conscience and accept any responsibility I have for the event that led to it. End quote. Power was sentenced to 8 to 12 years in prison for the bank robbery and 5 years and a $10,000 fine for the incident at the National Guard Armory. The 5-year sentence was to be served concurrently, so we've talked about that at the same time, with the 8 to 12-year sentence with the possibility of parole after 5 years. 
The judge also imposed a probation condition that Power could not profit from her crime. The probation condition also precluded her ability to profit directly or indirectly from telling her story. So basically she couldn't write something and make money from it. As a as, or something. And if she did, that was a violation of her probation. Okay. Power was sent to prison, and in March 1998, she was eligible for parole after receiving time off for good behavior. But she withdrew her request for after opposition from Officer Schroeder's family was received. Wow. So she was eligible for it and put in for it, and then when they got the opposition from Officer Schroeder's family, she withdrew her request. So she was released on October 2nd, 1999 after six years custody and had 14 years of parole. First of all, that's a really long parole sentence. (laughs) Um, Second of all, (laughs) that's crazy that she withdrew even though she was eligible. So she could have done five years and instead she did six. I think that she really did feel guilty. Yeah. You can really tell from her actions, which I mean, uh, good. (laughs) Yeah. While she, whether she pulled the trigger or not. Yeah. You, you were there, dude. Yep. So while she was in prison, Power completed her bachelor's degree in liberal studies through Boston University. And after her release, she returned to her family in Oregon, where she earned a master's degree at Oregon State University in interdisciplinary studies. Power just turned 73 this week. She currently resides in the Boston area and has two grandsons. Let's not forget about sex. She describes herself as a lifelong radical activist, intersectional in outlook since back in the day when we just expressed it as the idea of, quote, everything is connected, end quote. She also just had a birthday this month and is 73 years old. She has been married to her wife for almost 33 years and is still very active in the world of politics. A statement from Sachs' therapist quotes, about sex and power, quote, they are so appalled at what's going on in Vietnam that they want to do something. They decided to rob a bank and give the money away, but they didn't know anything about robbing a bank, end quote. All right, so let's move into number seven. Almost 17 years passed until another woman landed on the FBI's most wanted list. This woman went by the name of Donna Wilmot. She was 44 and had been a fugitive for several years before being placed on the list alongside her then-spouse, Claude Daniel Marks, making the pair the first couple to make the list together. Donna Wilmot was born on June 30th, 1950 in Akron, Ohio. In 1969, Donna Wilmot was a member of the 1st Vencedemos Brigade to Cuba. Okay, so let's talk about the Vencedemos Brigade. In 1969, the Students for a Democratic Society, we're going to call this the SDS, proposed that the SDS should organize a contingent of American students to travel to Cuba as a gesture of revolutionary solidarity. As guests of the Cuban government, members of what would be called the Vencedemos Brigade would not go as tourists, but as workers intending to assist the struggling nation reach its ambitious goal of harvesting 10 million tons of sugarcane for export, allowing them to raise capital to shore up the economy and lessen dependence on the Soviet Union. This became an annual project, sending thousands of American students over the years to work and learn about Cuban history and culture. So why are we talking about the Vesteramos Brigade? It's because Wilmot traveled to Cuba in November of 1969 with the first contingent of the Vesteramos Brigade to Cuba. So she was a part of the very first group to go. Okay, like the fourth female we discussed today, Bernadine Don, Donna Wilmot was a member of the Weather Underground, which 
as a reminder, is a radical activist movement that was known for using violence as an effective means of protesting societal constructs like racism, sexism, classism, as well as the Vietnam War. Wilmot was charged in 1985 with buying and transporting explosives to blow up Leavenworth, a maximum security prison in Kansas. It was part of a plot to free Oscar Lopez, a leader of Fuerza Armadas de Liberación Nacionales, a Puerto Rican separatist organization who's known for using violence to further their cause. He was serving a 55-year sentence. The FBI originally located the pair when Marks bought what he believed to be 37 pounds of explosives from a merchant who was actually an undercover agent. When Marks and Wilmot found the FBI monitoring device in their car in 1985, they fled to Los Angeles with their spouses and children and went underground. Wilmot was the 412th fugitive and 7th female placed on the FBI Most Wanted list on May 22, 1987. While she was wanted by the FBI as a terrorist, she transformed into Joe Elliott, a neighborhood fixture in her community, volunteer with the AIDS Task Force and Children's AIDS Project, doting mother and loyal friend. In 1994, Wilmot, alongside Marks, her partner in the 1985 crime who had been living a few blocks away under the name Greg Peters, turned themselves in to federal authorities in Chicago after almost a year of negotiations. The two surrendered on December 6, 1994, and Wilmot was sentenced to three years in prison in May of 1995. Marks was sentenced to six years due to his larger role in the plot. When the two's friends and neighbors learned that they had turned themselves in, they were in shock. All reports indicate that they were good friends and parents, they were involved in their community, and had developed many relationships over the years that were meaningful to those involved. No one suspected these two to be criminals, let alone labeled terrorists. But those are always the ones. <laughs> those are the ones to keep your eye on. Yes. So let's move into woman number eight. Shantae L. Henderson. Let's do it. Born in October 18, 1982 in Kansas City, Missouri, she grew up in the Charlie Parker Square Public Housing Project in Kansas City, Missouri. Another 20 years pass between the listing of Donna Wilmot and the next woman to appear on the Most Wanted list, but Shantae Henderson served one of the briefest tenures on the list as she was captured less than 24 hours after being placed on the list. Henderson killed DeAndre Parker, 21, who was shot in his pickup truck outside a convenience store in her hometown of Kansas City, Missouri in September of 2006. Henderson, then 24, was already a suspected murderer and a member of the city's notorious 12th Street gang. Authorities believed her to be involved in five other murders and as many as 50 gang-related shootings. After the September shooting, Henderson kept a pretty low profile until she re-emerged and allegedly facilitated a spat of gang warfare. On March 31, 2007, Henderson was the 486th fugitive and the 8th female added to the FBI's most wanted list. Henderson claimed self-defense in court, stating that Parker was attempting to run over her with his truck when she fired her gun. However, Parker's girlfriend testified in court that she was in the truck when Henderson walked up and shot him without being provoked. So like, girl, no. On January 23rd, 2009, Henderson was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment on the voluntary manslaughter count. The execution of the sentence was suspended and Henderson was placed on probation for a period of five years. Henderson was sentenced to three years imprisonment on the armed criminal action count. 
Henderson was released in 2010 and was on probation for the voluntary manslaughter count, but was arrested again after only five months later for possession of a firearm. Not only did she get seven and a half years of prison for the weapon charge, a judge revoked her probation and sentenced her to the underlying 10 years for violating the terms of her probation. Police have suspected Henderson was involved in as many as five other murders and a number of other shootings. However, no other charges have been filed due to the lack of evidence. Henderson denied involvement in any other criminal activity and or gang affiliation. Henderson is currently incarcerated at the Missouri Department of Corrections with a projected release date in May 2025. Going on to number nine. Um, This one may sound a little familiar to some of you true crime fans since this case has been featured on an episode of Oxygen's show Snapped. We're talking about Brenda Delgado, a dental hygienist student from Dallas, Texas. Brenda Delgado, who's 36, was studying to be a dental hygienist when a fixation on her ex-boyfriend took a dart turn. She had been dating a dermatologist named Ricardo Peniagua, but their breakup and his subsequent new relationship left her feeling jealous and angry. Delgado's ex-boyfriend was dating Dr. Kendra Hatcher, a pediatric dentist, and it was learned that he was introducing Hatcher to his parents and planning a trip to Cancun, Mexico. So things are heating up fast. Wow. I feel like this Ricardo guy has a thing for people in the dental field. Apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's when jealousy set in, and of course, the dark side of Delgado arose. In 2015, Delgado hired two people. There was a gunman and a driver. Um, and he, she hired them to murder Kendra Hatcher out of jealousy. Hatcher, who was 33, was shot and killed on September 2nd, 2015 in the car park of her Dallas apartment. The two accomplices who carried out Delgado's orders were bribed with money and drugs, which according to the FBI, she said came from cartel connections in Mexico. She offered the getaway driver $500. That's it? $500. That's it. I think that says a lot about her, too, because you're only willing to give somebody $500 and the driver was, like, agreed to that, which means she must have really needed that money. So she, like, played this girl. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Delgado fled to Mexico after being interviewed by FBI agents investigating Hatcher's death. On April 6th, 2016, Delgado was placed on the FBI's most wanted list as the 506th fugitive and the ninth female after evading authorities for six months. A $100,000 reward was offered for information leading to her arrest. Two days later, she was captured and held in a Mexican jail before being extradited back to the United States in October of 2016, but it was on one condition that the U.S. would not seek the death penalty. The reason they were able to do this is because she had citizenship in both countries. So Hmm. what happened to each of them? The gunman, who was Christopher Love, was arrested and charged with capital murder. In October of 2018, he was found guilty and sentenced to death. He is currently incarcerated at the Texas Department of Criminal Justice in the Huntsville unit where death row inmates are housed. The driver, Crystal Cortez, she pled guilty to murder and agreed to testify against Love and Delgado in exchange for a 35-year prison sentence. Cortez, who's 27, is serving her 35-year sentence at the Christina Melton Crane facility with a parole eligibility date of 2033. After deliberating for 18 minutes, a jury found Brenda Delgado guilty of capital murder (laughs) on June 7th, 2019. Upon her conviction, she was automatically sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Delgado is serving her sentence at the William P. Hobby unit 
which is a women's prison in Marlin Falls County in Texas. Death row was not an option for Delgado since Mexico extradited her under that condition that she did not face the death penalty, but had that not been a condition of her extradition, she would have received the death penalty. Yeah, definitely. Which is kind of crazy. So I guess it sounds like Mexico doesn't believe in that or... Correct. And what's crazy is, um, I mean, it does show her character a lot. I mean, this, this says a lot about her, but it's interesting because I mean, if I were to give anybody any advice that was about to commit a crime, do not do it in Texas. (laughs) Very true. Their punishment is ridiculous there. Yes. All right. So our 10th and final woman placed on the list is Shanika Miner. She was born November 29, 1991 in Mississippi. At the time of the crime, she was 25 and resided with her mother in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where she was a newspaper delivery person. So, this is the crime. In March of 2016, Miner's mother was complaining that the neighbor had been playing loud music late at night. This neighbor was Tameka Perry, a former classmate of Miner's. Miner, who had her concealed carry license, took it upon herself to confront Perry on the street with a semi-automatic weapon. Miner's mother ran out to defuse the situation. Miner ended up going back into her mother's home, but she still kind of felt like her family had been, quote, disrespected, end quote. A week later, around 3 a.m., she entered Perry's duplex through the common hallway and encountered her at the rear door. Miner's mother ran down again, placing herself between the two women, but Miner was able to reach over her mother and shoot her pregnant neighbor in the chest in front of her two children, which killed her almost immediately. Her unborn child, due within the next week, died before the ambulance got there. That's terrible. I Be- mean, because of loud music? All because of loud music. And she did it in front of her two other children. It's terrible. So Miner fled the scene and was on the run. On June 28, 2016, Miner was the 509th fugitive and the 10th female added to the list, and a reward of up to $100,000 was offered for any information leading directly to her arrest. She was apprehended three days later in Fayetteville, North Carolina on July 1, 2016, after citizens informed law enforcement that she was staying at a motel near the airport. Minor pled guilty to the first degree reckless homicide and first degree reckless homicide of an unborn child. On August 24, 2017, she was sentenced to 30 years in prison. She is currently in Teichita Correctional Institution in Glendale, Wisconsin, with a maximum discharge date of July 1st, 2049. It's crazy because she could make parole earlier than that, but that seems like such a long ways away. But really, if she was in Texas, I mean, she may have received capital punishment. So it's hard to say, you know, just every state is so different. Each state is so different. I mean, even when we're talking about Mexico a little bit, right? country is different. Each country is different. But I kind of want to take a moment and think about like how much more intense the crimes have gotten over the years. It's terrible. It's crazy to see the way that the crimes have changed over the years and what has landed people on the FBI's most wanted list. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that it's just going to continue to get worse. It, that is a very good projection. I but, would agree. with that being said, we will never run out of stories to talk about. 
Very true. <laughs> yes, this um, is definitely a secure topic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and there's plenty of other women out there that have made the FBI's terrorist watch list, um, and they've committed heinous acts and all that kind of stuff, but they haven't been prosecuted, and they maybe haven't escalated to being placed on the FBI's most wanted list, mm-hmm. but it could be that, remember when we had talked about in our last episode that you know, that the crime could have been committed a long, long, long time ago, and then they finally get placed on it now. So we could still see yeah. crimes that were committed, you know, a long, long time ago of them now, just now getting placed on the list. And I know they have like a watch list of people that they know where they're at or the general location, but aren't able to apprehend them for whatever reason, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's crazy to think that well, there could be a whole lot more, but they just haven't made it yet. Yeah. All I have to say is that this couldn't be me. <laughs> Even at the worst points in my life where I hit rock bottom, I had nothing, I felt alone or maybe even scared, I couldn't have ever victimized someone or been on the lam for such a long period of time. Same. The stress of always looking over your shoulder and not being able to trust anyone or at least most people Mm -hmm. would take such a toll on my physical and mental health. I mean, don't you think? I mean, can't you even imagine like if... After you're committing a crime and then you you have children of your own, you want to teach those children right from wrong, but you have this huge hidden secret right. that you can't even share with your kids nor your husband or your friends and family, your work colleagues, because a lot of these women have legit jobs too. And ho- your whole life is a lie. Yes. You're not a cook. You're a terrorist. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you know what I mean? That's crazy. <sighs> not to mention, I mean, even in today's day and age, like... It's so tough to get away with as many crimes as they did back then. Mm -hmm. Like with our digital footprint, you have to like literally not have one and be willing to disconnect from everyone and everything you know. Yeah. And probably be somewhere that's not very pleasurable, like the jungle. Yeah. Maybe even like a small town that has like no street cameras and few resources. But again, isn't that just kind of miserable? Well, not Isn't only it worth that, it? but I mean, like, literally everything, when you think about it, phones. I mean, like, right. even some of the cards nowadays, they talk about the chips. And yeah. it's like everything that we have that we think is a normal part of our life, we can most likely be tracked. Right. Isn't it? Isn't it worth it just to turn yourself in? I mean. Or just not do a crime. Right. Moral of the story is, is that this is not the life that I choose, nor do I think that I could survive long without losing my mind. Probably not in a zombie apocalypse either, but we'll get into that another day. <laughs> Very true. Very true. All right, you guys. With that, we will wrap up this week's episode on the 10 women who have made history by landing themselves on the FBI's most wanted list. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and and stay stay caffeinated. caffeinated.